So we're going to look at the book of Acts today, and the book of Acts is kind of a crazy, kind of a crazy book. There's a lot going on, and so we're going to read uh, a little bit of an intro to the book of Acts. And so I invite you to, to, to listen along uh, here as I read the intro to the book of Acts. Because the story of Jesus is so impressive, God among us, God speaking a language we can understand, God acting in ways that heal and help and save us, there is a danger that we will be impressed, but only be impressed. As the spectacular dimensions of this story slowly and suddenly dawn upon us, we could easily become enthusiastic spectators and then let it go at that, become admirers of Jesus, generous with our oohs and ahs, and in our better moments, inspired to imitate him. It's Luke's, ta Luke's task to prevent that, to prevent us from becoming mere spectators of Jesus, or fans of the message. Of the original quartet of writers on Jesus, Luke alone continues to tell the story as the apostles and disciples live it into the next generation. The remarkable thing is that it, it continues to be essentially the same story. Luke continues his narration with hardly a break, a pause perhaps to dip his pen in the inkwell, writing in the same style, using the same vocabulary that he uses in the gospel named after him. The story of Jesus doesn't end with Jesus. It continues in the lives of those who believe in him. The supernatural does not stop with Jesus. He told his disciples, you'll get the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be able to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. And about midway through the book, we read this. This message of salvation spread like wildfire all through the region. Luke makes it clear that these Christians he wrote about were no more spectators of Jesus than Jesus was a spectator of God. They are in on the action of God. God acting in them. God living in them. Which also means, of course, in us. And so that is, the, that is the book of Acts. That's what it kind of underscores all that's happening in the book of Acts. And so there's just tons of stuff going on. And we're going to look at, at one particular character in the book of Acts, that being Paul. And, and we're, we, we have to recognize that what's written in the book of Acts is not for us to look back at things that happened once upon a time. That's not Luke's purpose in writing this. Luke's purpose is to say, this is you. This is all of us on mission with God. This isn't just a, a historical account of, of how the church got started. It's how the church continues. It's how the Spirit of God continues into our very lives and into the culture around us and as it comes in and through God's followers. We have to recognize that this is the story that we have been written into. Dallas Willard says this, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. Our actions are, are, the, are the means by which we determine what we believe. The means by which we reflect on what we really believe. And for most of us, that reflection coming back in the mirror may not represent what we think we believe. And those are the moments with God that we, we have to invite him in to help us to be transparent with ourselves, that we may turn from the things that distract us from living out the things that we want to believe. The ironic twist here is that this is typically where our faith can live and die. That if we don't live this out, uh, if we don't let this call us to action, our faith begins to feel futile and fake, like this nice thing that, that we did once upon a time because it felt good. 
but it doesn't, it doesn't carry into life any sort of action or tangible experience that lets us know that it's real. But with that reality comes some fear and it comes some consequence and it comes some risk. If we don't live in this bigger story, we will find a cheap alternative. Our hearts are hardwired to be a part of a story. And there is a good story that we are written into, that, that we are a part of. And if we don't live in the good story that is true and real, we will live in a fake story. And we will become self, focused on our self-preservation that rather than on a, on a self-sacrifice and service as a part of God's mission. And self-preservation says, I'm only responsible for me and my own. And what happens to everybody else and the rest of the world and culture around me is not on me. That is an attitude that is pervasive in our society and our culture, and it is not one that is driven by the gospel. That is not a message that comes from, from, the, from the heart of Christ. And that is not what we see lived out in Jesus. When the Bible tells us that, that, that Jesus is God with skin on, that's an incredible piece of information because when we read the Bible and read an account of Jesus, it's not just Jesus, it's God. This is how God is. This is how God wants us to live. It's how he himself lives as a human. The book of Acts is fast-paced and, and there's so much going on. It, we could kind of be clouded with a lot of that. So here really quickly is like four or five things that are happening that help us kind of understand what we're about to read. And uh, so there's, and, and as I give you this, there's, we're going to be in chapter 23, which is on page 1118 in the Bibles that are in the seat in front of you. Uh, we're reading from the, the NIV translation, and if you have a, if you have a tablet or, or phone or device, that, that's the translation that we'll be reading from. But again, it's chapter 23, we're starting in, in verse 1. But, but here's what's happening. There's this political and religious upheaval and clashing that's, that's happening as, as we jump into this story. And Paul is caught right in the middle of that. Jesus has died and has risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit is now active among God's people. And what that means is that, you know, long before, you know, Jesus was around, God's presence with his people was limited to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was a thing that God instructed his people to build, and that's where he dwelt among them as they moved around where God guided them. But they couldn't get really close to it, and they, they, there was all these different rules about how they could access it and who could access it. So God was with them, but he was not something that they could interact with. So then Jesus comes on the scene, and God is now not limited to the tabernacle. He's in a person. And so the people can now interact with him, and they can, they can get a sense of what God is like and, and how he lives and what he cares about and how he loves and how they ought to love. And the only limiting thing about Jesus is that God's presence can only be where Jesus is. And so what's happening here is that Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, it's unleashed the Holy Spirit on everyone who follows him. Everyone who, has, who is in relationship to God, who is a follower of Christ, is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So now God's presence is everywhere that his followers are. It's gone viral. And that's why it's, it's, it's springing up like wildfire everywhere. It's not limited to a, a, a location. It's not limited to one person. It's indwelled in God's people. The church is springing up, and there's some challenges with that, and Paul's kind of right in the middle of that as well. And so where we pick up this story, Paul has been traveling from city to city, and every time he enters a city, the same thing happens. He gets beat up, 
he gets dragged to jail, he gets in trouble, and then they eventually kick him out of, the, kick him out of town and he goes on to the next town. And Paul is not, you know, just rolling the dice or just kind of wandering aimlessly. He's, he's, he's following God's instructions, God's call on his life. In fact, right before this, as they're about to go to Jerusalem, there is a warning to him, don't go. There's nothing good that's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. But Paul's resolve and confidence in what God is doing in him leads him to go to Jerusalem anyway. And that's where we pick this up in the first verse of chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you, are, are you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor, nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So what Paul shows us in this first part of this passage is that he has unwavering hope in the resurrection. And what this means is that the resurrection has happened and Paul is, is, has hope in God and God's will and God's way because of the resurrection, he recognizes that God is someone who keeps his promises. He is someone who can be trusted. And if he is faithful to, to the resurrection and his power raised Jesus from the dead, then I will believe and follow what he's calling me to do. And so his hope comes from the resurrection. He's on trial before the Sanhedrin, this is, which is the ruling council for the Jews, and it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees who don't particularly get along except for when they're in a situation like this where they're, they're basically ready to take someone's life for what they believe to be a false teaching. They don't like what Paul is preaching and proclaiming. And the story is moving so fast here that it would be easy for us to, to be distracted by what's happening to Paul and miss what's happening in him. And so what's happening in him are five characteristics that demonstrate the power of the hope in his life. And the first one is that Paul was honest. He's honest before them. He recognizes why he's there. I mean, he's not going to hide any of that. And so he's honest before them. The second thing is that he's prophetic. He, he, he's prophetic in that he's, he's calling out what is to happen and why it is to happen. He's respectful of Scripture he, he, he not only holds the council accountable, but he holds himself accountable and he realizes that he has spoken out of turn to the high priest. Paul was strategic. This is where this whole thing turns. He, he's not necessarily trying to create this violent altercation, but he is with his honesty and, and prophecy and, and respect 
about to strategically place an argument in there that's gonna tear the whole place apart. He says, I'm on trial because of what I believe about the resurrection. And at that, half of the group realizes that they agree with him, and the other half realizes that the other half doesn't agree with them, and a fight breaks out. And Paul was confessional. He confesses in the midst of them that this is, this is what this is about. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. I confess. I'm guilty before you. If that's what you want to hold me accountable for, you're right. So Paul has nothing to hide, and he's not hiding anything because he trusts that God is doing something in the midst of this situation that he knows nothing about. So what does this, have, what this has to do with hope is that, is that, that Paul, again, is, just, is so focused on what God is doing, it doesn't have to make sense to him. He makes this really simple. And he simplifies it down to what have I been called to do and I'm going to go do it. And why can I go do it and trust that God is going to do his part? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. He did what he said he was going to do. He's faithful to his promises, so he'll be faithful to me. And this is the crazy thing about Paul. They can't break him. Matt Chandler, who is a a pastor in Texas, he puts it this way. He says, Paul is this incredible person that just can't be broken. That, That they say, well, we're going to make you suffer. And Paul says, that's okay. Suffering is, you know, leads to character. Character leads to hope. And, you know, and hope is what it's all about. And they say, well, fine. If, we, if you want, if, you, if suffering's not good enough, then we're going to kill you. He's like, that's okay. It's not I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. If I die, it's gain. They can't get to him. His resolve and his confidence is so strong, they can't get to him and they can't, they can't break him. And this is one of those places where we can put ourselves in the story. You know, Pastor Henry last week talked about this, that that some of where Scripture gets its power is when we put ourselves in the story. And so in in your outline this week, you'll see that there's a bunch of blanks blanks that is where you can put Paul's name. I would encourage you to put your own name. And and put your own name, not not to take Scripture into your own hands, but put your own name because this is a story that's written about you. The promises that Paul is standing on are the promises that we can stand on. And sometimes when we see our name in a sentence or in a line of scripture, it changes the way we put it inside of our hearts. And so I encourage you to write down your own name in there. Write down some of your own circumstances. It's a bit like a Mad Lib, if you will, uh, to just to, to personalize those statements that they may become truths that you bury in your, in your heart. Paul has this incredible courage that he puts on display here. We have a couple of baseball players in our house, and uh, this, is, this is the first year for one of them, for Bennett, to play kids pitch. And kids pitch is a pretty crazy deal, you know, especially the first year, because they, they, they're spraying the ball all over the place. So everybody gets hit, you know, and there's, you know, and so, and all of them desperately want to get on base. They want to, they want to get on base. And so most of the time what happens is internally it's like, I really want to get on base but I really don't want to swing the bat, and I really, don't, I, don't, I really don't want to get hit. And so they stand there half frozen, hoping that the pitcher throws four balls and they can walk to first base and get on base. And that's most of the time what happens. And, and so as you're coaching, as we're coaching kids in, in, this, in this league, we're encouraging them to, to get into the box and stay in the box. Don't step out, don't back out, get in the box and stay in there, yes, you might get hit, and it might hurt a little bit, but it's not going to kill you, and, and you're going to be okay. Swing the bat. Swing the bat. Be in the game. Don't just stand there passively and, and wait 
to, to see if luck will play out and, and get on base. It takes courage, and courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting in the face of fear. Courage is being afraid of something and doing it anyway. We love this idea of courage, but we don't love what comes before courage. What comes before courage is fear. And courage, then, is the action that takes place in spite of the fear that we have. And that's what we see happening with Paul, with Paul here. I think I skipped over one of my points. And so one of the things that is happening as well in this next verse, in, in verse 11, is, that, is that, that Jesus visits Paul in his cell. And so in verse 11 it says, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Paul's afraid at this point. He's you know, probably, you know, in, he's, he's moved to the barracks because of this violent altercation. And Jesus shows up and, Jesus shows up and comforts him in person. It's one of the weird things about Acts. It's like, wait a second, I thought Jesus already rose to heaven. What's he doing back in Paul's jail cell? He shows up and he comforts him. It's not a vision. It's not a dream. Jesus shows up and he comforts, he comforts Paul. And so as we move on uh, from there into this second part of this passage where things kind of really continue to heat up, uh, we pick it up again in, in verse 12. And it says, The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand and drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then, the, then, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And then it goes on to record the letter that is written that's going to accompany Paul on his way to Governor Felix. So there is this crazy thing that's happening. Paul's been whisked out of the Sanhedrin. Jesus visits him and encourages him and tells him that, hey, what you're doing here in Jerusalem, you're also going to do in Rome. They are nowhere near Rome. So if we're Paul, we're saying, okay, this is going to be interesting because I'm in a jail cell, nowhere near Rome. I'm thinking that I'm going to die, but Jesus says that I'm going to Rome. So I guess I'm going to Rome. And I'm going to sit back and, and watch this play out. And play out it does. By some crazy set of circumstances, Paul's nephew hears about the plot against him. He brings it to Paul. Paul transfers the message to the centurion who takes the boy to the commander. And then the commander does an even crazier thing. He, he mobilizes this huge military contingency to whisk Paul away again under the cover of darkness to safety. 
We see here that Paul is preserved through surprising circumstances. And we are often preserved by surprising circumstances. What's most remarkable in this part of this story is that there are no burning bushes in Paul's rescue. There's no, there's no miracles in terms of the parting of a Red Sea or, or some kind of cosmic, you know, environmental kind of thing happening that it, it clearly is at the hands of God and is making a safe passage for, for his people. None of that happens. What we see is that Paul's life is spared as a result of people doing what's in front of them. God uses their actions to accomplish his purposes. And this is what we experience when we follow Jesus. This is the power of hope that says our lives and our circumstances are significant beyond what we see. Sometimes because of our own lives and sometimes because of people's lives whom we may never meet. We can rest the weight of our concerns on God and trust that even when we don't see him working, he is working behind the scenes. His hand is moving things according to his purpose and according to his promise. And will it bring suffering and hardship for us? Yes. Sometimes in the name of the gospel and sometimes because there are things that are happening in our lives that we have no control of, but that God is still at the hand of. Our lives on mission with God move us to action and they're actions that are compelled by God and used by him to accomplish his purposes. And this is how we get into the action. You'll remember that we've talked about the two different views of the church in the past, this fortress view and the parish view. And the fortress view says that, that the world is bad and it's gonna keep getting worse. And so what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to hide over here on the edge of the world, away from all the world, wait for everything to get bad because then Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna take all the good people away and he's gonna punish all the bad people. That's the fortress view. And I would submit that that's not a, a gospel-oriented view uh, of, of what's going to happen or what God's purposes are. The parish view is a gospel-centered view of God's mission to the world. In the, in the parish view, the church is in the middle, and we gather like this together. We gather as a large group, and we gather in small groups, and we encourage each other, and then we scatter throughout the week, wherever we're going to go, to work, to school, to our sports teams, to our neighborhoods, and, and, and that is the means by which God takes his mission to the world. And it's not that the world is bad and we should hide from it. It's that, that darkness is not going to drive itself out. We are the carriers of God's light. And we can't stand in disdain or judgment of, of the world. We have to dive into it and be active as a part of God's mission. Russell Moore says this about it. If Christians see ourselves as people who are losing the culture, rather than people who have been sent on a mission to a culture, we will be outraged and hopeless instead of compassionate and convictional. If we do not love our mission field, we will have nothing to say to it. We are the carriers of God's light. And in the moments that are coming to you this week, moments that none of us even know about yet, it's not merely our decision to raise our voice or to use our influence for something that God is doing. If God is going to call us into it, he will lead us through it. It's not for you to go out and, and, and find something to do for God. It's for you to sit in the still, quiet moments and discern how God would have you use your influence right where he's put you. Even when that means that there may be consequence for that. It means that he will carry you through it. And it means that it's something that's going to advance, advance the kingdom. Why didn't Paul stay away and stay safe? 
because he was so determined to carry out what God had placed in his heart, it really wasn't a decision. This is where it became so real to Paul. To not do it would have been just not, it would have been inconsistent with who he has become as a person. And that's what Paul's life is showing us here. That God is with him and the Holy Spirit is the driving force behind all that he's doing. As followers of Christ, we don't go into the hard places or, or love and give sacrificially to earn something from God. That is not how the gospel works. In last week's message, Pastor Henry reminded us that every other world religion believes that the door is at the end of a long line of things that we do to earn God's love and approval and earn an afterlife or, or whatever the, that religion may believe. Christianity is the only world religion that believes that the door is at the front. That we walk through the door first. And then all of this happens because of the, of the power of God that is indwelled in us. We aren't doing this to earn God's love, to earn his favor, to get to go to heaven. That's not what that's about. Our, 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 our challenge, our call is to step through the door that's on the front end that we may be empowered by God and first and foremost recognize that he is real, that the resurrection is real and that its power lives in us. And secondly, to take that mission to the world around us. That's what's happening here with Paul. And so his circumstances, his suffering, his imprisonment, he is honestly saying that that is of mere insignificance to me because of what God is doing in and through me. When we walk through that door, this is the faith and hope and encouragement and power that are available to us regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Let's pray together.